0: Welcome to Chase Your Dreams, a podcast for fashion entrepreneurs who want to build a purposeful and profitable clothing business so they can make a living doing what they love. I'm your host, Glynis Tao, an apparel business consultant and SEO specialist with 20 years apparel industry experience. I'm also a mom to a wonderfully energetic little boy named Chase. Glencora Twig is someone who I've been wanting to connect with for a very long time because she's been part of the Vancouver fashion scene for as long as I have, nearly two decades. She was a co-owner of a well-known Main Street clothing boutique called Twig and Hottie. A little story of how this podcast episode came to be. I was meeting with Glencora to discuss another project. Then we just got talking about the fashion industry and how we've seen it evolve. It occurred to me that this conversation needed to be recorded, so I asked if she'd like to be on my podcast, and she said, of course. Since we couldn't meet in person due to the current pandemic situation, I want to make it a little fun virtual coffee shop talk as if we were two friends meeting for coffee at JJ Bean, which happens to be Glencora's favorite coffee shop in town. Hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Here is Glencora to tell us a little bit about herself.
1: My name is Glencora. I've been in the local fashion industry in Vancouver for about 20 years. Um, I cut my teeth um, working uh, at my own retail store with two business partners, and we produced a clothing line. We did that for about 15 years. And while we were uh, learning our creative craft, we also invited other Versioning artists to come and join us. So we had sort of some wholesale, some consignment, some that was like factory built, some that was made offshore, Um, but we had a triple sort of approval process. One was you either had to be Canadian, um, you had to be sustainable or you had to be locally made. Um, So there was a variety of different stories that we were telling around manufacturing and quality of good and creative process for our designers as well as for our own line that we were doing. Um, I've also spent about 10 years uh, teaching in a variety of colleges around the city, sharing my knowledge. I feel um, compelled, almost like it's a civic duty to um, give back on that level and share what I know and help the new generation get going. And the past three or four years, I've been working for a company called Fairware um, after we shuttered our re- retail store, um, working as an account manager, helping uh, businesses source uh, appropriate marketing um, products for their um, initiatives with trade shows, so kind of, you know, the swag industry, but um, the focus of fairware was also sustainability. So our conversations all revolved around um, ethical procurement, sustainable materials, what is fair, what isn't, and guiding our clients who were surprisingly naive um, about those issues despite working for progressive companies um, around how to make best decisions there. So that that's it in a nutshell. And I suppose, I don't,
0: yeah, <laughs> that's it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, I just wanted to kind of talk to you about, you know, your journey in the fashion industry and sort of like, um, how you got started. And just before we get into all that stuff, like, um, your baby's due in a less, like less than two weeks, right? Yeah, I think we're at day
1: 9 until due date now. We're 8 oh, or something. Oh my goodness. Yes, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how are you feeling right now cuz to I me mean, to be expecting and like pregnant and going through all of this like the pandemic, it's like <laughs> how how does it feel?
1: Well, it's been interesting actually and I think a lot of parents can, you know, probably Identify with this, it's, it's nice to have a bit of a slowdown, to be sincere. Um, the way that the world was turning was pretty darn quick. Keeping up was hard. Um, the playing field felt desperately unfair for small people. And, uh, you know, now that I'm, you know, welcoming another little person into my life and slowing down my life, professionally anyways temporarily to make space for this new life um, I just I just feel like it's wonderful that everybody else around me is also slowing down a little bit
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, Perhaps that's selfish. I know that most people are wanting to get back to sort of quote unquote some sort of notion of business as usual um, but I'm really hoping that business as usual after all of this is somewhat different than what business as usual was prior. Um, and that, you know, while I'm carrying life and bringing life, that I get to offer a new reality for this little person um, to, to grow up in. Um, yeah, so I don't know, I feel, I feel really blessed, actually. I've been planning and saving for this time off. And so it didn't catch me off guard the way it did many other people. Um, and
0: yeah. Yeah, so the timing for you is kind of good in a way. Yeah. I
1: know myself to know that like I would feel it's maybe a bit ugly to confess this, but like some form of jealousy if I'm just home sort of trapped in the house and breastfeeding and feeling like the world is passing me by a little bit. Mm. Um, And so now with everybody else sort of like in the same boat as me, I feel a greater sense of connection to everybody as I move through Mm. this time. So
0: yeah, it's really interesting um, because, like I said, you know, I, I've been making more connections uh, through all this than I had been before um, the pandemic started. And I just feel more connected and just reaching out to more people. And through my podcasting and running um, webinars every other week. Uh, I've been slowly building up a community of people and just connecting more and being able to be support to one another through all of this. And, you know, when I think when it first started, there was just so much fear and uncertainty around it. And everyone wasn't sure what to do, if they should continue business as usual, if they should even be you know, selling at this time or if they should be launching or they just should stop doing anything um, or what. But then, I mean, it's been uh, six weeks now since uh, we've kind of been in this, since the quarter yeah. started. So I think people are starting to come around more and go, well, we know this isn't, isn't permanent, right? Like um, this will pass and that uh, we should, just continue doing what we're doing. However, I'm finding that a lot of people are just kind of rethinking about things, like of what they should be doing and um, how they should run their businesses. And they're really taking the time to do that and where they're saying like, you know, they wouldn't have had this luxury to do it, like where they would have normally have been on the road, traveling, going to trade show. Uh, however, now they have they're stuck at home. And so they have more time to to think and to reflect. So.
1: Absolutely. And I think humanity in general is not very good with change. Um, So we've had to sort of like put the brakes on pretty quick and adapt very quickly. And that means a lot of change in a short amount of time. Um, And I'm pretty impressed with how people have generally stepped up. So I feel like the resistance to change in humans is more about Well, if it's working and I don't have to put any extra effort in, I'm just going to keep the status quo. But when it's not working, there are other solutions and people are finding them now. So it's a bit of a a wake up call, I think, to our attitudes towards um, both business structures, uh, the way we see our environment, the way we interface with technology, um, and our consumer behavior patterns. You know, humans always think like, they know what's best for themselves. Like, Oh, I know what's right for me. I know myself, Mm -hmm. but often we don't some, somehow we get in our own way or hold on to a story that's no longer serving us. And it's, it's good to sort of be forced out of your norm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And to be, to put ourselves outside of our comfort zone, like where we normally would have just been on autopilot or something, right? Doing yeah. things like if you have a nine to five, like not really thinking because you're just kind of setting in this, this autopilot. Um, but I think now this totally disrupts our routine of doing things, how we do things that I'm finding like a lot of people are first of all like okay I'm stepping out of my comfort zone like I'm not used to doing this I'm not used to working from home or being isolated or um, I'm not very tech savvy uh, before or a lot of people said said they've been neglecting their websites um, and not doing anything but now we're kind of like oh I'm forced to have to go and, and 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 do that and fix and work on it and So it's kind of like really interesting what's come out of this that I'm like, well, you know, despite everything that's going on in the world, um, like there's silver lining to all of this, like has something good come out of it, you know, with your business. And everyone like in the last uh, webinar that I did, they all said, oh yes, yes, definitely. Oh,
1: that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think too, there's like a return to sort of, more caring and empathetic compassionate um positioning like most marketing now is like how are you doing are you holding up is this working for you is this not working for you so there's this curiosity about how people are being affected and people are approaching others in more gentle ways um because we all know that it's strange times and um that acknowledging that is the right thing to do so I think that that's a nice shift to see in the business world where you might normally just get a marketing email that's just like bye 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 now it's like how are you doing and how can I serve you better um I think I think that's progress myself Mm
0: -hmm. yeah yeah I had to take pandemic like this you know, so people like more, more human
1: yeah no I think so I think so I think we get like a runaway train kind of thing that kind of that's kind of how the it all felt like it was this runaway train where it was kind of exciting and exhilarating and your hair is flying behind you but you also know that there could be something really dramatic and bad at the end of that runaway mm-hmm. um, yeah so we've kind of hit that like that bad spot and now we're trying to you know, get ourselves out of the train wreck and figure out how to move forward, so.
0: Yes, absolutely, yeah. you know, as a, as a collective. Um, and I remember something like where the entire world has been, that, you know, we all go through the same time that I feel like the whole world is in this together. So, yeah. you know, feeling that kind of collectiveness and that shift, but yet we are it's bringing us closer together perhaps and us being able to use this, all these forms of technology um, to to be able to, to come together and to be able to share our messages.
1: Yeah. I mean, it seems like a, I don't know what's the right word, like an oxymoron or a counterintuitive. that something that would have us isolating ourselves would also be driving a Mm -hmm. sense of connection, Um, which I think goes back to the, humans think they know what they want. And they will say, you know, if somebody said, hey, would you like to be locked up in your house? And all you can do is hang out with your immediate family for the foreseeable future. Most people would say, no, thank you. <laughs> um, but a lot of people I talk to are really embracing it. So,
0: yeah. 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 Hey, so let's talk about, um, so, so your journey in the fashion industry, you're been around like, probably one of the, the veterans in the Vancouver fashion industry, <laughs> I would say. Um, like, how how did you get started? Like, did you go to school for, for fashion? Um, yeah, so I got a degree
1: in psychology at UBC. And then um, from there, I went to Japan and taught English and wanted to sort of expand my horizons. And then I worked in a capital management firm and realized pretty quickly that um, despite the financial payoff of that industry, it wasn't my place. And then I took myself promptly back to this wonderful little school called the School of Fashion, which most of us OGs in the Vancouver industry know. Do you, are you, do you know that school,
0: Glynis? I do know it. Yeah, I still remember Helen, the uh, lady with the, she had a very tight bun. That's right. We called her the bun. The bun. Um,
1: <laughs> and it was, you know, she was trained in... Um, Eastern Europe. If I have it correct, I believe her background was Polish. And somehow she made her way to, you know, the west coast of Canada back in the day. Mm -hmm. She lived a wonderful life as a couturier uh, working for um, sort of the elite of Vancouver. Uh, Designing clothes and making clothes for their travels and parties and whatnot. And as a woman with a conscience, she said, I want to teach others. There's nothing like this here in Vancouver. And um, she really wanted to have her couture concept and legacy continued. So I went to the school at the time when the whole world was shifting away. Like Vancouver used to have a really robust manufacturing sector for the apparel industry. Actually, you know, very close to downtown, very central, very active, diverse, um, driven a lot by Hong Kong immigrants that came over as uh, specialized skills through the 70s and the 80s. And uh, that was all disappearing when I was starting business. So there seemed to be a lack of infrastructure for us to work with Mm -hmm. um, when we had our ideas and our designs and you just couldn't get things produced the way you wanted them to. So we just decided that that was the ethos that we wanted to stick into and uh, stay local and um, sustainability was also something that was growing in importance. And so that became our, our major focus. And yeah, so being, having this sort of like very sort of strict Polish Eastern European training um coming into this like very very modern world it it felt a little bit at odds with each other so we it took a while for us to sort of figure out how to bridge that gap.
0: Mhm. Yeah. yeah, like was this like during the mid 90s sort of that you're talking about? Uh
1: yeah, a little bit later more like uh, early 2000s.
0: Yeah, when the industry was just starting like to grow. I think it was before um the Lululemon's Aritzia is probably around. They were probably one of the first major brands out of Vancouver. I think. Oh yeah, like the big
1: players were already in place. Were Lululemon, in place. I think, started the same year that I started. Um, oh, okay.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, with very different outcomes. <laughs> so. Um,
0: yeah, because I um I went to Kwantlen, uh, Oh, Okay. Yeah, in, in ninety what ninety three to 95. Um, it was before they had the degree program. It was just a two-year diploma program for fashion design and technology. And, um, after I finished that program, I, uh, went to Ryerson. Oh, wow. Yeah. To get my bachelor's degree. Um, but I think what, from the time I left, like when uh the vancouver fashion industry just kind of starting there were quite a few local designers around um what uh, what's her name um catherine catherine reguer reguer yeah, yeah. those times
1: ty- vonda
0: nellis exactly yeah. uh limbo we we had to do this project where we designed a limbo dress and um so there was a scene that start, was happening and like Yaletown wasn't really even what it is like to today, like it was just starting, like designers were moving into that area. Yeah. And then I moved away to go to, I moved to Toronto like in 95 and um, I ended up living in Toronto for 15 years and working in the industry over there. But that's when the industry over here really took off. Like, Yeah. The- thousands exactly that was right when we sort of hit a stride with this
1: amazing new crop of talent that came out um i remember my grad class like we were such a strong cohort i don't know why why that happens but it seems to happen that there seems to be these waves of um i don't know if it's consciousness or shared values or what it is but we were just so good, and it wasn't just our school. There was other schools putting out these amazing grads that were putting, you know, exceptional work on our graduate runways, and being very aggressive in our entrepreneurial spirits. Primarily women, and highly creative, um, and so incredibly hardworking. Um, I don't. It's hard to explain to anybody who's not really in the product space just how taxing the product industry is and um financially time wise all the resources <laughs> it's really um it's really a big it's a big e- a endeavor mm-hmm. so yeah it was an incredible to see and um you know there was also like Wendy from dream designs or dream boutique who was a, a front runner in this sort of whole space and she's still at it
0: yes a, a i complete, remember they
1: were in yeah, gap- she-
0: Oh, oh, Wendy, the one who was, uh, oh, she owned the boutique, right? Yeah, Um, she owns Dream. She's always
1: been a dogmatic supporter of local, sustainable, handmade, creative. She herself is a creative. And, you know, to have people like that and, you know, and then there was like Jacqueline Cournoire and, you know, sort of industry adjacent, industry design type things. It was just, you know, a very exciting time. And I think for about 10 years, it was just kind of ratcheting up. And then the um, subprime mortgage crisis, 2008, Mm -hmm. 2009, took a lot of people out. Mm -hmm. And that was really hard to watch. Um, I was, you know, I, I tracked our sales, you know, daily, weekly, monthly, annually, made all those like pretty little graphs so that we could analyze blah, blah, blah. And it, there was like it was like a cliff that we fell off of and rebuilding from that was so hard.
0: Yeah. Are yeah. you talking about Twig and Hottie? Yes,
1: yeah, sorry. Yes. Um yeah, so yeah.
0: for people who are listening and um don't know, um you used to own a retail store on Main Street, right? Called Twig and Hottie.
1: Yeah, and Main Street was sort of another one of these hubs of um local talent and it still is to this day. Um, yeah. So Twig and Hottie, my last name is Twig. My, um, our other founder's last name is Houghton. So we shortened that to Hottie and we became Twig and Hottie sort of in the style of Dolce & Gabbana and Versace where all good fashion houses are named after their founders. So yeah.
0: Cool. I didn't know that story. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) So um yeah you know it was yeah after 2008 there were the whole local industry I mean the global industries at large took a hit as well it wasn't like we were alone in that um Mm -hmm. and then we you know we all kept working and kept rebuilding but it was it's like the wind had been taken out of us a little Mm -hmm.
0: bit so when you had founded twig and hottie when um Uh,
1: 2002 or three I think three January yeah we were still in design school actually and we took over the lease for this consignment shop and took over her inventory and slowly actually our first day um January 2nd working the store we literally gutted it she had so much junk in there it was like not a consignment store it was I don't know something else (laughs) (laughs) so we you know that was that and then we started going to like vintage picking warehouses and reworking some stuff and we were still in school and then as soon as we graduated we you know put our grad garments in the window and started um, asking for people to come and join us Um, and uh, getting you know month by month and year by year a little bit more sophisticated in what we were able to Produce. We were doing everything by hand at that stage, so Christine and I um, would split the days at the store, and um, the days we weren't in the store, we were at our home studios creating, and then we would get into the store, and then we would literally have the greatest privilege of any designer is to watch your own goods be tried on and people fall in love with them and then exchange this ambiguous thing called money for something that you made by your hands. And that is a feeling that I still cherish. Um, It feels like a huge privilege to have that exchange.
0: Um, Yeah, And I think that's what motivates us designers to keep going is to see the reaction of the, customers face when they try it on they put it on and you feel like see you see that transformation you know oh. they feel like wow you know I feel so good with this wearing this this garment and you just feel like oh my god you know this is the whole reason why I'm doing this
1: oh you get it Glennis. it's like it's the be- it's a very powerful feeling it's like intoxicating Mm. Um, because you have to get the fabric right you have to get the fit right you have to get the look and feel right you have to get the functionality
0: right um, yeah, there's so much that goes on um behind the scene seams maybe I should say that the people don't know right and
1: it's a huge body of knowledge and you know the lay public just sort of feels like oh you're a good little sewer and it's like well no, I have a huge body of material knowledge. I'm also an incredible pattern maker. Um, yes, I can sew, um, but all, you know, there's just so much that goes into making good clothing. And it's a lost art. It's not taught in high schools anymore. It's not handed down from mother to daughter. Pardon the gender specificness there. Uh, I know the fashion industry has lots of wonderful men in it, but um, the sewing side of things is certainly a women's space still mm-hmm. globally. Um, mm-hmm yeah it's uh, it's an underrated
0: craft. It really is. Um, and the amount of you know cheap stuff that's being pumped out now by fast fashion companies really you know devalues the whole system um, of, like that and and I think that's why so many um independent designers right now are they struggle with having to. Um, justify the value of their pieces and why something costs the the way it co- the way it costs, right? Like I'm finding a lot of designers have to go and like explain, oh well, this is, this costs be- this because you know when they're starting out. Unless the, like, did you find that like about um, the time when you were doing Twig and Hottie? Like, was there that issue, or is that more of a, like a problem that we're facing? Mm-hmm. Oh no, that, that's,
1: that issue is longstanding. Yeah. Um, you know, H and M and Zara and all those stores were alive and well when I was in business and, um, you know, people would compare and, you know, some people would be open to the, you know, quote unquote conversation, which was really just a lecture of you trying to explain to them in a way that wouldn't scare them off or make them feel badly. Mm -hmm. Um, I found there to be a ton of customers who would talk the talk, but not walk the walk. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, had people come into the store and like literally try to rip off patterns or knit um, stitch counts and that kind of thing for certain garments and say things like, oh, well, I could make this at home. That was the most insulting thing as a retail owner representing artisans to hear um because it just invalidated the creative process of the artists and I I like I still to this day cringe thinking about like I would just turn on my heels and walk away from people like that honestly there's not much you can say um if that's their sort of thinking and paradigm um, yeah and not understanding that that that's called theft like not to put too fine a point on it, but nobody's ever accused me of beating around the bush. You know, that's called theft. When you take somebody's idea and claim it as your own and people get all uppity about cultural appropriation and this, that, and the other thing, and then they do it themselves. So um, yeah, that 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 was hard to watch.
0: Yeah, um, and I guess it comes to a point where you just, you know, it's not even worth your effort to you know they are already set in their way of thinking that it's not worth like having to explain yourself or try to teach them because like there's some people where you're like oh you know i can see that they're just not aware yet and so, so you can kind of you know take the opportunity to educate them on you know the whole process or the creative process and stuff but some people are just like <laughs> maybe not even there yet like or so set in the way of thinking that you're just kind of thinking like well this is not even worth it not worth my time just it's better just to walk yeah away. to totally to walk away you do you have
1: to pick your battles um because it gets tiring and demoralizing and um and at the end of the day one person's values is their values and that's perfectly yes. fine and acceptable um yeah even if they're different from yours, right? Like that's the world we live in. We have to respect other people's way of seeing things. Um, but I did sort of draw the line when people were thieving ideas. Um, because I know, like, I mean, not a lot of people know about this, but like there's no trade trademark protection in the fashion industry. It's a bit of a controversial issue. There's a lot of designers that would like to be able to protect their original creations. But, you know, long, 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 long time ago, it was decided that the building blocks of the fashion industry were not protectable because, and if you think about it, it's, it's a good um, ethos. If somebody owned the rights to a dress and only they could produce it and only they could sell it you know, we would be holded to that. We couldn't even cut and sew a dress for ourselves. And, you know, clothing is considered part of our shelter and our basic needs. Mm -hmm. Um, Beyond that, we get to also um, go all the way up Maslow's hierarchy and um, get to self-expression with our clothing now too. But at its fundamental roots, it's our protection against the elements out in the world. So it is, I think, appropriate that all of those building blocks of the fashion industry is open to all um but then we do now in this day and age see so many problems with artwork being copied and taglines being copied branding being copied and um, different understandings of intellectual property in different uh parts of the world Mm -hmm. so that um yeah we just need to have an open conversation about that I think
0: yeah absolutely yeah Um, um, yeah it's just such a big problem Uh, I know a lot of designers face that um and so let me ask you this so this so this podcast is um intended for fashion entrepreneurs or anyone who's thinking starting a a clothing company um a clothing brand uh, like for you, you you've been an entrepreneur for over a decade um like were you able to merge your creative um with your business side like how did you handle that are you more creative or are you more of a business minded person
1: oh that's a million dollar question um i think anybody who knows me well knows that i have a pretty shrewd business mind um that's i think The place where I stand out, um, to be sincere. I I think my level of creativity is, um, I I don't know, normal. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't consider myself hyper-creative or tremendously original. Um, I think that place where creativity and business connect is where I live. Um, and also as somebody who's deeply values oriented, um, all of my business ideas and thrusts are around, um, ethics and environmental improvement. Um, yeah, I find often like the highly, highly creative people are, they need a business partner and the people who are deeply business oriented need a creative partner. Um, if you don't have both of those in this industry, it's a loss. So yeah, I think I'm yeah, I think I need to be just honest and like I can make beautiful clothing. Um, and I am creative and people see things that I make and they're, Oh, that's so great. But then, you know, as artists, we're always, we see ourselves against other artists. And when I see really those true creative types, the real designers out there, yeah, then you really do kind of know where you sit. So
0: yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm sort of I'm the same way. Um, probably. I I have like, I don't know, my left brain, right brain are sort of equal in my yeah, way too. of working. And maybe that's what, you know, helped me with my business because I ran a clothing design company for t- for 10 years. My what was that de- called? It was called Punch Brand. Punch brand. Okay. And you had you ran that out of Toronto. I started in Toronto. Um, I started doing anime and comic book conventions. So I designed a line of clothing that was inspired by Japanese anime and pop culture. Amazing. <laughs> so it was very niche. <laughs> very niche. Yeah, but I found it work because I really enjoyed that whole scene and the people and the, the, the community, the, the kids who attended these conventions. Um, were just such huge such fans. of spirits. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just really inspired by them, by seeing them all dressed up in their little costumes. Like, you know, they're really into cosplay. Yeah. And dressing up as their favorite, you know, anime or cartoon, video game characters and stuff like that. So I was designing like hats and hoodies with animal ears, like panda hoodies and. Cat hoodies and fox hoodies and like it's not the most original thing, but they still they sold because I think of my market, right? Yeah, um, is a very niche market, and like I was saying, you know, I'm not the most creative. I wouldn't say like, I uh, you know yeah, I compare myself like, like there's real artists out there who are amazing and super talented, and who inspire me. And I did a lot of collaborations actually with um, artists. Um, and but I was also equally good at the, like the business side of things um and and figuring it out and maybe my creative brain is more of the good like problem solving like I'm good at problem solving and troubleshooting uh-huh uh, and that, that's a statement right like that's what I would call like to me it's that's creative creativity as well, right, and you, you need that in business, I think because um, things are not always so straight and linear. There's always, you know, things are always changing. So I think I, that's kind of where my creativity came in. And then, you know, figuring out the business side of it um, after. So, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, when you meet those true artists and designers, it's like, first of all, they're compulsive about their whatever their art- artistic medium is you know, there's a saying about writers that writers don't write because they want to, they write because they have to. Um, I feel much the same about any artist in their chosen medium. They are compelled to work in that um, chosen craft. And I I have never reached that place. Like I currently don't have a sewing machine (laughs) that's functioning. Um, But I am working on a number of apparel based projects on the side so Mm -hmm. um yeah and I think that is one of the cool things about the fashion industry it that marriage that needs to happen we're not artists we're designers and the design space is about where commerce and aesthetics meet um so I mean I think that partnership is exciting and beautiful um yeah
0: exactly um and so how about do you want to talk about your work at Fairwear? Sure. Yeah, that was a really big shift for me. Um like going from Like how did that transition happen? Like going from your own business and having your mm-hmm. own clothing brand and retail store, then like um were you were you hit by the the 2008 economic crisis or Well, we were hit by that, but
1: we crawled out of it, slowly but surely. Um, I guess we, you know, as life unfolds, you have different needs at different stages of your life. And when I started Twig and Hottie, I was 25. I had just gotten married. Over the course of my time running Twig and Hottie and We Three Designs, which was the clothing brand that we produced for the store and wholesaled across North America. I got divorced in a very expensive city. (laughs) So I had to figure out how to be a single person with a toddler, I also have a 13 year old. So um, I had to figure that out while also running the businesses. Um, That's when I started teaching in the colleges. And uh, it just after a while, it just kind of came to a place where we worked worked and worked and worked and worked and worked. And it had been 15 years almost. And we weren't getting to that kind of economy of scale. We certainly didn't see any kind of success like Lululemon did that was founded the same year we were. Um, Nobody in the sort of like banking industry would take us seriously. We couldn't really get a loan unless it was like collateral against my house or something like that. It just started to feel like the chips were stacked against us. We couldn't grow. Um, I had two business partners at that time, Christine and, um, and Jess and you know we were not growing and not learning. Christine moved to Victoria, she had a child and it just kind of became clear that it wasn't going to be enough for us to sustain us over a lifetime. and it, there was many, many conversations that led into the decision to close down. And we tried to pivot into like maybe we could do online sales, maybe we could do this, maybe we could do that. And we just, we just decided that the best thing to do was to, to wrap them both up. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are still very close, all three of us. We there's no love lost between our partners. Um, stayed very close. And one thing that we've agreed to is we three, which was our clothing line we've agreed that all of the building blocks, so all of our patterns are open source to the three partners. So all three of us are allowed to use those patterns whenever we want, however we want. So I think that's a pretty cool and unique arrangement. Nobody bought it out. Nobody, we didn't sell them. Um, so we have, we kind of each of us have that in our back pocket. If we want to do something creative like that, we have something to start with. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, but it just just became clear. And so then um, I did uh, my graduate diploma at Qualen. I did the technical apparel program there in the attempt to sort of shift into the local industry with the bigger companies. Um, But what I found was that as an entrepreneur, you build this like amazing skill set where you're wearing 10 different hats in any one day and your world and work is so dynamic and fluid up and down the chain. You can... Sometimes be acting like the CEO and sometimes be acting like the plumber. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was a richness in my work life that I wanted to hold on to. And I became very clear very quickly that those kinds of jobs don't exist. Um, When you take a job at any of the big firms, it's like this is a circle hole and we need a circle peg and you're going to sit in this hole. And you're going to do the same thing day in, day out. And maybe after five years, we might promote you and you'll see something new. And that just wasn't going to work for me. Um, So I really realized that my skill set as an entrepreneur was something that was best suited. Um, I mean, a lot of HR people would call me, quote unquote, a generalist because of how much experience I have instead of a specialist in any one thing Um, that I needed to do something that could be in a small company where multiple hats could be worn or get back involved into a startup. And I didn't want to do a startup. So, um, Fairware had a posting and I had no idea who Fairware was. So I, I applied, I interviewed and they offered me the job and it was a really big change. <laughs>
0: <laughs> in what way?
1: Yeah. Um, well, going to a desk environment, spending every day at a desk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Big change. Um, having a boss, that was a big change.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not one boss, but two bosses. Um, one direct report. Uh, working in the business-to-business space rather than the business-to-consumer space was a big shift. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. Um yeah. And, uh, you know, I learned a ton. I was with the company for about four years and uh, they supported me. I mean, I don't know how many people know this, but I also experienced a cancer battle um, right when we were closing down the store and I was transitioning Mm. into fairware. So through that madness, I also had stage four lymphoma and six months of chemotherapy. And, uh, my business partners helped to wrap up the businesses when I was unable to, and Fairware, um, held my job for me and waited for me. And I, there are no words for the gratitude that I have for
0: that. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. Wow. And, and so I, I guess to you then, you know, I mean, transitioning from, Entrepreneur to employee is a big change, um, so, so something must have aligned with you, like Fairwear, like the values yeah. or something. Like for people who don't know, Fairwear is pro- a promotional company, right? Eco- uh, yeah. Produces promotional products. Yeah. Yeah, it focuses on sustainability and eco-friendly products
1: yeah i mean the biggest thing that fairware promotes is an ethical supply chain um the founder of fairware one of them anyways was the former sustainability director for mec and so her expertise was really in vendor code of conduct and um All the different ethical certifications that factories and warehouses and distribution agencies can hold to sort of uphold their brand promises Um, so that was her great strength and then beyond that she had also great material knowledge Um, but that was something that i brought to the table more was an encouragement to the team to not just ethically produced but you know the optics when something lands in somebody's hand is what it looks and feels like and so if we're selling plastic that's ethically produced it undermines our overall mission. And so we have been over the past two to three years driving towards more um, environmentally friendly materiality as well within the organization. So, yeah, I mean, um, fair, fairware is like a mover and a shaker in the fat in the promotional product space, like having conversations that that industry was not prepared for it's a luddite industry with people you know, there's a low barrier to entry and all you really need is Excel and Word and an email address to get going. Um, And it's pretty easy to make money in that space, to be sincere. Um, But if you put any constraints around your product offering, then it becomes quite difficult. And so we worked with values aligned companies that understood the conversations we were having. Um, So I had the privilege of working with like Eileen Fisher, developing a bag for them, a couple of Years ago, that got distributed through Nordstrom's all over the USA. Um, I worked with Patagonia developing patches for all of their retail um, specialty retailers around Canada and the US. Um, Dr. Bronner's Soap, uh, Aritzia was one of my clients. Um, You know, just these amazing companies that are really driving change in the business space towards sustainability and partnering with them to help them have great product. So very proud of the work that I did there, actually. Very proud.
0: Yeah. Great. Um, So, I mean, how has, have you seen yourself yourself through the years? Like, I I guess you, you've changed, like from throughout your journey through the, this, um, you're working in the industry, like from when you first started to now, like, What's the biggest change that you've seen this this industry and the industry itself? Like uh, from time you started to now, or uh, what do you see the changes have been from what you what you knew when you from when you started to what you know now?
1: Yeah. Okay, that's a big question, right? <laughs> um Well, you know, it was interesting because when we closed Twig and Hottie and wrapped up We Three Designs, we saw very quickly a strong escalation in the conversation around sustainability in the world with, um, you know, the movement from Greta Thornburg reaching mass and all of these conversations became much more normative. When we started, we were really out front. Um, You know, everybody in business knows timing is everything. And we were too early i think people were not quite ready um, to understand the issues and now i i see that they are and not only on a business-to-business level but on a consumer level people are putting their money where their mouth is mm-hmm. um which was behavior that was not you know something you could count on when we first started so that i see that as a pretty big shift mm-hmm. um, and then the shift in me gosh i don't know it's so hard we're like so close to ourselves it's hard to know i wonder what somebody else would say i no. guess i've seen i went i went from seeing myself as somebody who was really small and had imposter syndrome and sort of covered that up with a whole lot of bravado and um you know i'm tall i'm six foot tall i kind of use that a little bit to my advantage to somebody who realized that, like, I don't need to force my power. And, um, you know, when I enter into conversations with people now, instead of assuming that they know more than me and that my voice is, you know, the lesser voice at the table or something, um, I now assume the opposite, uh, that I don't need to speak terribly loudly because um, my experience and my time People understand that I know what I know.
0: Mm. So
1: I guess like a sense of self confidence.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Do yeah. you find that like uh, like when you were a young designer, business mind that you did you experience
0: imposter syndrome? I did. I think when I first started, up, I I didn't know what I didn't know, right? And I just kind of went into it and just doing something that I felt really passionate about. I didn't really question myself whether or not I I was good enough yet. Um, and because for me, that, that business really grew organically. It started out as a hobby for me. But I think it was through the years. I had gained a lot of experience, right, and knowledge um, prior to that because I had worked in the industry for a decade. Um, yeah. Mostly, yeah, before I went and started my own business, so I had at least I had that knowledge with me, but I mean, with anything going through the challenges, I find it grow you grow through it and, and and I think going through challenges um even though it seems difficult and impossible at the time to- at that time, it feel like you're you don't know how you're, you're gonna get out of it, but you you always learn something afterwards and it changes you and then you learn something about yourself i think through these these things and it's like even now right with this during this time yes yeah
1: yeah i know i I think when you're young you're really scared of failure and you're really you know you don't want things to go wrong you only want to see success and then the more you grow into yourself in your career you understand that failures are not the end of the world first of all that people are not going to judge you on your failures um they're going to judge you on how you handle your failures um so whether you opt to learn and change and grow from them or if you just sort of stick your head in the sand and ignore it yeah i think that's the greatest blessing of maturation just growing growing up is good
0: It's so true, but doesn't mean that we're not afraid. (laughs) I don't think a fear ever really goes away, but I think you just become more equipped, better equipped, to handle it, because you you you've been through it and kind of have those kind of bumps and bruises and scars from before. Like, okay, I've been through something like this before. That I know, like, okay, I'm able to handle this. (laughs) Yeah, maybe that's what you you know.
1: Fear, like um, you always care.
0: Yeah. Like when you're younger, you, you just kind of like afraid of making mistakes or af- afraid of failing or afraid of just what people will think of you. Yes.
1: Yeah. And then you, you got to find a way to grow out of that. Otherwise the world will eat you alive. <laughs> right?
0: Yeah, it's true.
1: Yeah. It's, not, it's not a sustainable <laughs> mindset. Um, no. But it's something I think that we all have to go through as part of our growth. Um,
0: yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, what advice would you give to someone who is starting out in their in the fashion industry in the journey, or thinking of starting a uh, clothing brand <laughs> business?
1: Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> Be honest. <laughs> Be honest. Well, my daughter. At one, my my daughter that's thirteen she was like i want to be like mommy i want to be a designer i want to make clothing and i was like no you will not (laughs) (laughs) um which i've i've reversed a little bit on that um i think you know too many of my mistakes were staring me in the face when she was saying things like that and um i think she has a greater chance i far bigger success than i ever had uh as the person that she is um uh, gosh
0: i mean if she comes to you one day and says mom i'd like to be a fashion designer
1: yeah support her of course i'll support her <laughs> i'll and then i'll go to my bedroom and cry <laughs> Just, i guess you know it's so hard Glennis. it's um So I grew up in Vancouver and watched the city go from like a oversized town to this global city that has become out of reach for normal people. Um, And I would like to see this, part of the world return to something that is more sustainable so that people like my daughter can say I want to be a fashion designer and have a chance at chasing their dreams here mm-hmm. um it the realities around that are so hard um to own a home to find stability to buy a car you know these things can't be dismissed as unimportant in life we need to feel like functioning citizens um and and see progress in our lives and the opposite has been happening for small businesses in Vancouver so if there was a way that the western world could shift with this you know going back to what we're talking about at the beginning shift back into a place where that kind of opportunity for young people was a real possibility to be self-sustaining and they could live a halfway decent life on the income they can make from that yeah. Um, yeah, I would support my daughter to do whatever she wanted, mm-hmm. but I also don't want her to like make choices in her life. That's going to make her unhappy due to not being able to go out for dinner every once in a while, or, you know, um, you know, buy a car when she has children in order to get them around safely. And, you know, it's, I think i I think things through too rationally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you well, feel I mean, Like you you also have a child. Would you what would you say to them?
0: I mean, I'd support him in whatever he decides to do um in his life, in his career. I I already see some tendencies where I think that he's gonna be <laughs> where he, I think he's gonna be going, you know. Um but I want him to find his own way, um and and discover um what he's good at just give him the support and not kind of uh try to be one of those parents to say i only want you to be a doctor or a lawyer <laughs> you know like i want him to explore that himself and support it but give him guidance along the way and 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 steer him i think um but let him also learn ultimately i want him to be happy right with his his choice like Um, to be able to do something that he loves to do, that he's good at, and that the world needs. Yeah. Yeah. Because I I, I saw this um, diagram uh, of three circles intersecting. It's called ikigai. It's a Japanese term for um, something like purpose, your life purpose. And it basically is these three circles of like um, doing what you love, um, doing what you're good at, and creating something that people need if you can like do all three
1: yes then you'll find purpose in the middle yeah i've seen that yeah yeah i think a lot of young people think about like they you know come from a strong ego perspective which is also very normal i myself recall that that time in my life and um you know they're like i want to do this i want to do that and there's like you can't stop me which is an amazing energy Um, but I think that the greatest successes come when you think about first, what does the world need from me? Um, and what, what do I have to offer that could be a game changer? Um, I think we, you know, our sort of individualistic society has trained us to think that we need to think about what we want. Um, and that can lead to some. Strange ways of thinking and not always um, healthy, you know, can lead to anxieties and stress and depression because if what I have to offer and who I think I am isn't being readily accepted by the world, then there must be something wrong with me and there couldn't be. That's just so not true, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, Um, I agree with that.
1: Yeah. So I think that there's this fine line between that. Yeah. That Venn diagram of like, what do I want to do? And what am I good at? um, And what does the world need um, of me? How, how am I of service? Uh, That concept seems to
0: be. I think um, like for me, I kind of like stuck with one career choice throughout my life or one industry like the fashion industry and I started out you know I studied fashion like this is kind of rare not a lot of people do what they went to school for um right like (laughs) so I went to school for fashion design and I'm still in this industry so for some reason I feel like I cannot um get out <laughs> no matter how hard i try i just somehow get sucked back in i tried exploring different things but everything i do just ends up leading back to this and in, you know instead of designing now i'm on more of a consultant consulting level um, but still for the fashion industry
1: yeah because
0: it's what i know and ultimately you know it's not that i, I I don't agree with all the practices or whatever, you know, what this industry has become, but I still feel like I, I've been in it so long, maybe, um, and and some of the stuff like I like teaching is just still the old school stuff. Right. And I still think that's a lot of the, the basis of of it um, cuz a lot of the the new school people come out are like oh it's all about marketing it's you know it's all about social media and branding and stuff and I'm like yeah that's important but i don't know i just still go back to um oh i don't know it's the old school things um and and and, and maybe it's just what i'm good at you know Mm -hmm. like my strengths are in product development. So it's just like, yeah, I could talk about that, you know, forever. Yeah. Me too. That's
1: (laughs) yeah. I think you get to a place in your career and it's like, like going back to sort of what I said earlier, it's like after a while I stopped seeing myself as somebody who was the lesser voice at the table and realized, Oh, actually I know my staff. I know more than this 60 year old white guy. Um, who is getting all the respect and it's just about navigating that, making sure that you know how to have your voice be heard in whatever scenario you're in. Um, but yeah, you get to a place where you have this like expert knowledge, which is where you're at too. And what do you do when you have expert knowledge? Like do you go back and rewrite your story and become a novice again? I mean, I think that's a very brave thing to do and people do do it. Mm -hmm. Um, but it sounds like, you know, similarly to myself, you are very passionate about this space. I keep trying to think of other things to do with my life. And I always keep returning to how can we make better things in better ways? And that's just what drives me, what makes me think that I have something to offer in this world um, through the person that I am and the life that I've created um, and the way the world is turning. I've, I think that there's opportunity there. So.
0: Yeah. I think yeah. too. Um,
1: yeah. But going back to your original question, I think, you know, advice to young designers, cause this is the audience and, you know, to speak to them, it's like, it's, it's not easy, but it's worth doing just like everything in life that's worth it is not going to be easy. Mm -hmm. And to just take every learning lesson with a grain of salt, figure out how you pick yourself up when you fall down and keep on trucking. There's a certain amount of faith required in this industry that it will work out. And if it doesn't, um, there's other options out there. So Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah, I
1: think the place where you have to be willing to work really, really hard and cut your teeth and start in the ground and work your way up and you can't skip those steps. And so to really embrace that process and really master each step along the way to like, you know, if you have a Joe job at Lululemon, it's your entry level job and you know you're above it. Well, prove it by doing that job perfectly every day and and you will then make your way up um embrace the grunt work that's my advice embrace the grunt work
0: I couldn't have said it better that's yeah great advice
1: because <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of grunt work in the fashion industry
0: <laughs> it is it's the most unglamorous yeah. it's just so so um ironic it's from what, so... what you see in the fashion to be is so you know glamorous and all that but really behind the scenes it's just it's not pretty
1: no and it's very quickly yeah it's a it's an industry of smoke and mirrors don't expect to get rich in this industry those stories are few and far between maybe Mm -hmm. that'll be your story amazing but expect to live a really middle-class life and do it because you love it
0: well glencora thanks for chatting with me today Glennis, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find me on Instagram at Glynis and my website, GlynisTao.com. Please subscribe to Chase Your Dreams podcast if you haven't already. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others who you think this may help. And lastly, it would be great if you left a rating and review for our podcast. See you next time.